It's a joy to be with you this morning. I have a soft place in my heart for Kingsburg and for this church in particular. It was my first semesters of seminary that I got to come up here, a native of a faraway land called New Mexico. And I was going to seminary in L.A., and my wife and I had just recently been married, and we had no kids yet, and we got an invitation to come up here to a Bible study, and I got to preach on a Sunday night, and, and they didn't throw stuff at me, and it was, it was a match made in heaven. So I've been up here, I think, a dozen times at least, maybe more, uh, for Summerfest and, and for preaching at the church, and it's just great to see what God is doing in this place here in the valley, uh, to see a church that's uh, growing and loves one another, uh, fellowship. You can always tell a healthy church because their time of fellowship has to be interrupted you know, by, by someone demanding everyone to sit down and grab their Bible. So uh, it's because you love each other and you love to come together, and that's what Christ has done in putting together a place like this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your pastor. I love Pastor Scott, and we get to work together some at the seminary and preaching classes, and uh, it's been great to get to know him a little more, and I'm just really, really grateful to be here, and I want to express that to all of you. Thank you for having us. My family and I came up uh, via Pismo. Uh, I've never come that way before. It's a little more scenic than the 99. Uh, it's a, kind of a better route, at least the first couple hours. So we, we had a great time together as a family, and now we're up here, and we're headed back. Kids, our kids have school tomorrow for some reason. I don't know what kind of socialist thing they got going in L.A., but <laughs> anyway. Will you open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2? Hebrews chapter 2. This is a passage that's been with me for a number of months as I've been thinking about it. I'm, I'm teaching through this book back home at church and... It was several months ago that we spent some time in chapter 2, and there's a paragraph there that's, that's haunted me, honestly, uh, since that time, and one that I want to share with you, and I think it's an important passage. This letter is such an important letter that Christians desperately need uh, to be a part of their spiritual diet, and so let's read together Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4, and that'll be our attention in our time together this morning. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So reads the Word of the living God. It's true. It's inerrant. It's powerful. And it's my prayer that He'll write this on our hearts this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1-4 through four is called a warning passage by those who study the book of Hebrews. There's five passages like it that punctuate this letter that we've received as part of our New Testament, a letter that's unlike any other letter in the New Testament. It's anonymous. There's no authorship given to us. We have questions about who the recipients were. Uh, Was it a group in Rome or was the letter written from Rome? We're not totally sure. Uh, There's a lot of questions we have about the circumstances that surround a letter like Hebrews, but it's one that's familiar to all Christians. It has in it some statements of of bibliology, some statements about Scripture that are memorable. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. That comes from the letter of Hebrews. It's famous chapter 11, uh, the Hall of Faith, as it lists those heroes of the faith who have gone 
before us as clouds of witnesses. It has memorable passages in it that remind us about the importance of church leadership, that remind us of the significance of letting our attention fade from Christ, and it's full of admonishments that tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But these warning passages are the most memorable parts of this letter. Their tone is severe. Uh, They're even frightening. They have a word of caution to them. Uh, It's a warning that's very serious. And sadly, warnings can be white noise to us. We're so used to superfluous warnings in our society and on the products that we use every day. You're aware of this. Uh, There is a book written by someone named Dorigo Jones. It's called Remove Child Before Folding. The 10 Stupidest, Silliest, and Wackiest Warning Labels Ever. Uh, This author picked up on the proliferation of warning labels and the lack of sense that so many of them make. And the book is full of examples. One of the examples listed is uh, this. The warning label says, May Cause drowsiness. That's on nitol sleeping pills. You think? Oh, another, another warning label says, do not use while sleeping on a Vidal Sassoon hair dryer. I don't understand that one. Uh, your kids have Razor scooters like mine do. A warning label on the Razor scooter, this product moves when in use. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. When the iPod Shuffle came out, that little tiny iPod, uh, the website under a list of things about that iPod said, warning, do not eat. Never, never crossed my mind. I have, a, I have an older truck that I drive, which is one of the reasons I'm, I, I like this place. It's a truck kind of a place. And... In my truck, I have a speaker that I got after an encounter with some law enforcement over the use of my cell phone. Uh, so, I, mean, what, I made it sound worse than it was. I, I paid. That's kind of the encounter. So, it's one of those, you know, additional things you add to your, to your roof there. and you, you, It's called a Jabra Drive-In Talk. And it's a Bluetooth speaker. And inside, in the directions that came with it, it said, never operate while driving. What did I buy this thing for? <laughs> Here, here's one that I think you guys would, would understand. It's a tractor company, a small tractor by a company named New Holland. And the label's very simple and straightforward. It says, avoid death. <laughs> it's, it's good. These are the warning labels that we're familiar with. And so when we encounter a a warning, we're we're likely to raise a suspicious eye to wonder about its validity, to wonder if it really applies to us or just to those who don't understand which end of the chainsaw means business. So when we think about warnings, I want us to transfer our minds from the overly litigious society we live in uh, that warns us about every foolish thing and be reminded that this letter finds warnings in it and uses these warnings to guide its message. And the message of the letters, letter to the Hebrews is a simple one. It's this. It's that Jesus Christ is supreme. It's an essential message. It's central to the gospel It is the very heart of Christianity. The author writes to these recipients and by association to all of us and all who would hear this letter read and reminds us that Jesus is supreme. So what does the supremacy of Jesus have to do with these warning passages? Well, it goes back to the very heart of Christianity. Christianity is essentially about a person about God's one and only Son who He sent 
to give His life for the sins of all who would trust in Him. He is the Great One. He is the unique Son. And the letter to the Hebrews is is trying to show you the importance of paying attention to Him, of looking to Him, of never overcomplicating your faith beyond the person of Jesus at the very center of this faith. That every doctrine that we understand, every important application of truth in the various categories of our life, whether it be work or parenting or marriage or society, all of those are centered around this person, Jesus Christ, who is the very object of our worship and the reason that we're gathered here today. These warnings come to us in the vein of this teaching about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And he has shown them in the opening of this letter a well-known statement. You can look at it in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He's inherited is more excellent than theirs. That isn't just some rhetorical flourish that he puts on to the beginning of this letter. That is the whole point of this letter. It's that Jesus Christ is better. And it's going to come in the tone of cautions to not neglect this most essential person. To know that you're coming to Christ is the first part of Christianity. And it never becomes more significant than that person of Christ. God has worked in Christ and we are not to expect some greater revelation because he is the final revelation we're not to expect a secondary spiritual supernatural experience beyond christ our attention should never drift from him we should never be dissatisfied with him he is the great one and he urges these original recipients most of them like all early christians were jewish and they were undergoing persecution the confiscation of their goods and property, the the difficulty that they had faced in synagogue and society and in family because of their allegiance to Jesus was beginning to be increasingly felt in the difficulty of the persecution that they were facing. And so some of them had begun to look over their shoulder and begun to think about a return to Judaism to maybe blend together Christianity with Judaism, to minimize the person and work of Christ in order to regain their their standing in the temple, in order to regain a family relationships that they had broken because of their love for Jesus. And the author is urging them through this entire argument of Christ's superiority both to uh, the law and to the angels and to Moses and to Joshua and to the high priestly order and to the old sacrificial system and all of it, the entire argument of the letter of Hebrews summed up in those opening words that God has spoken finally and persuasively and ultimately in His Son. God has spoken through His unique Son. In former times, He spoke prophet-wise, but now He speaks Son-wise. And this superior revelation has come through His heir, through the One who is the very radiance of God, the sustainer of all things, the Redeemer, the Sovereign, the Supreme One. And He is fine-tuning these people's understanding of of the Old Testament and our relationship to it. He's fine-tuning their understanding of angels because they're just mere creatures and servants where Jesus is the Son, the Creator, and the King. And He's trying to urge them and us the folly of going back to our former way of life. He's telling us that the blessings found in Christ will be discovered nowhere else. And any longing to go back, having turned our backs on the world, shows us that we need immunity against this kind of lukewarmness, a cure from apostasy. And so those opening words of Hebrews is what we've missed so far and parachuting into chapter 2, verse 1. Now you know where this warning is coming from. It's coming because there is a dangerous neglect, a dangerous tendency in all of our hearts to be drawn away from Christ. To be 
wooed by something other than the greatness of Jesus. To think that there are other aspects of our Christianity that ought to receive more attention than the unique Son of God. This was a temptation for them. It's a temptation for us. Sometimes beguiled by sin. Beguiled by lulled into into a sense of of boredom or complacency or the dangers of familiarity the longer you've been a christian the more you know there are many many who once claimed a love for jesus who over the course of time have drifted away from him and so hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 addresses that very issue and it addresses it not just to help us understand what happened to those who have left us but instead to urge our own hearts to be aware of the danger of drifting. We sing it when we sing that familiar hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And as you've walked with Christ through the decades and years, whether you've known Him a short time or a long time, you will experience this reality, this painful reality that the Apostle Paul himself experienced with disciples that were very close to him of those who made confessions of Christ but walked away. Their love dissipated. They drifted. And this was happening in this little church that the letter first landed at. And though they had received apostolic witness, though they have heard from eyewitnesses of the resurrection itself, and though they were receiving this great teaching uh, from in, in inspiration from God Himself, He knows it's a real danger. And if it's a danger for them, it's a danger for us. And it's one that I'm here to warn you about. There's a real danger of drifting. And so let's look at these little verses, four verses, and we'll look at it in two simple parts. Uh, First part is the danger that they faced in verse 1. And then we'll look at the warning that he gave in verses 2 through 4. So the danger they faced is in verse 1. Look at these words and see how much help is here for us. Verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That word therefore reminds us that this isn't just some emotional uh, appeal to uh, their hearts that there's a danger afoot, but instead it's a logical one. It's connected to all the doctrine that's gone before, and I already explained that to you. The supremacy of God's Son is in full display. God had spoken through prophets, now He's spoken through His Son. He is the exact imprint of God's glory. He's the radiance of God. He is the One who came so that when you meet Jesus, you have met God. To know Jesus is to know God. And God cannot give you a greater sense of who He is or what He demands than in an encounter with His perfect Son. And so he begins this little paragraph by saying, therefore, connecting it to all he's argued for uh, before this section, saying Jesus is supreme. And so this caution comes to not neglect that which is most essential. And he includes himself in it. And I think that's significant for all of us. Because we should never have an attitude that thinks that we are beyond drifting from Christ. That we are beyond the reach of apostasy. That we are beyond the reach of of neglecting, of losing focus, of walking away from that One who is so precious to us at one point in our lives. If even the Ephesian church, that church in the book of Revelation, who, who were so faithful and so fastidious, if they could leave their first love, then why are we not also mindful of the danger of drifting? And so he says, therefore, we, and more than once he includes himself, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This call to pay closer attention reminds us of what makes apostasy, the the walking away from Christ, the abandoning of Christianity, what makes apostasy so perilous, so audacious, so shocking, is that it is the very greatness and glory of the gospel that we begin to walk away from and that we neglect to pay attention to. 
You see, if the admonishment, and this is the first command in the letter to the Hebrews. We meet it in verse 1. The first time he's told them to do anything, he's telling them to pay closer attention. The inference is, is that they have slacked in their attention. That their attention is not at the uh, same level that it once was. You see, to walk away from any other religion, any other philosophy, or a mere human idea was one thing, but to walk away from this full revelation of God in Christ, to know that God has spoken and we're called to listen to Him, He's telling these readers and He's telling us by way of association that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What is it? It's the message of the Gospel. It's the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We are never to neglect this final word that is found in his son because no one is greater you see jesus came and he dealt fully and finally with our sin problem and in his coming everything changed now we have free and full access to god because of his substitutionary death on the cross we can experience the joy of forgiveness and in verse one of chapter one he wants us to know that jesus is worth our attention and he's going to end this letter in chapter 12 verse 2 in chapter 13 verse 8 begging these readers to fix their eyes on christ and in the meantime they must have an awareness of the tendency of our hearts to drift from devotion and simplicity and love for Jesus. That is the message that we have heard. It is the Gospel. It is the coming of Christ. It is the fullness of His revelation. Every one of these warning passages, whether it's this one in chapter 2, verses 1-4, through four, or the one we meet in chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's another in 5 and 10 and 12. Every one of them is intended for edification, not for destruction, not for discouragement, Huel Jones says it this way, they are neither heartless threats nor self-fulfilling prophecies. They are an exhortation which is truly evangelical in spirit and content. Even as a kid in Sunday school, I was taught that once you became a Christian, you would always be a Christian. Or the way we say it in a rhymy way is once saved, always saved. And that is a blessed and biblical truth of the perseverance of God's saints. Romans 8 reminds us that everyone who God justifies, He will in time glorify. And the difficulty of our human experience in in our churches is that we've seen people who we had much confidence in their status as lovers of God and Christ walk away from Him and walk away from faithfulness. And the Bible teaches us that those who do not abide in Christ, who do not stay with Him, were never truly saved to begin with. And though that explanation gives us some logical understanding of how apostasy works, the little formula, once saved, always saved, is not enough to hold us, to teach us, to persevere us, because it doesn't have enough Christ in it. If we are to persevere, if we are to continue in our faith, if we are to never become the objects of that dark word apostasy, if we're never to fall into spiritual peril, if we're always to stay faithful to Christ unto the end, whether God grants us many decades of walking with Him, an entire lifetime, or whether we face a short life that He's planned out for us, if we want to hold on to the end, then we must take this warning seriously to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Don't just stick to what you have, but pay much closer attention. Go deeper in the things of Christ. Be more resolved to know Him and to know His ways and His person and His character. Still in this verse, we, we explore the, the danger that they faced by seeing the importance of attentiveness, that that attention, that paying much closer attention to this greater revelation is a reminder to all of us that we are paying an inadequate degree of attention at times. But we must pay. It's not optional. We must pay so that it won't fall into the dullness of hearing he warns about in chapter 5. To know that Jesus has come, that God revealed Himself, and that's always mercy. In the Old Testament, God revealed Himself, and it wasn't an inferior revelation there. It was God's very Word that we have in the Old Testament. 
But when Christ came, it's an issue of better and best. It's, a better of, it's an issue of shadow and substance. And the danger that we face as our attention slacks is seen at the second half of verse 1. Lest we drift away from it. Drifting away. That's a picturesque phrase, isn't it? In the original language, drifting away uh, had many different implications. It was a, used word, a word used nautically. In other words, a maritime kind of a phrase, a, a word uh, about a ship that either would have uh, gone towards the rocky shore unintentionally or drifted out into the far wild ocean. We all understand the unpredictability of the ocean. My son experienced that on a rock at Pismo Beach this very weekend as the waves were smaller at first and then the tide increased and a larger wave hit him directly in the face. He was surprised by that experience, but it's the nature of the ocean. The ocean has a tumultuous way about it, doesn't it? And it has an unpredictable way about it. And the bottom of the ocean is the part that's most unseen. And this word would have everything to do with that concept. That that wild ocean and that rocky shore had a tendency to cause boats and sailors to drift from their course or for the anchor that so carefully and strongly held them to slip off into a deeper area and to no longer be anchoring the boat at all. That's the picture of drifting away. A ship whose anchor has slipped away. A ship who has become unmoored from the dock and has gone a separate way. In ancient literature, the word was also used of a wedding ring slipping off, or a ring slipping off of a finger. You all know that experience. I don't know that experience. There's no way mine's ever coming off. Um, I don't know what happened, but it used to slide on easily. Not really sure. I have an idea. I'm just not totally sure. I do a lot of weddings. I work with college students at my church in L.A., and they are of that particular age where they, they need wedding services quite regularly so I can do a wedding blindfolded at this point because we have a large college ministry with lots of students who are uh, getting married and so near every weekend I have a a wedding to to take care of and I've seen rings fall off during ceremonies fall off the pillow and fall off the fingers but more often I've heard stories upon the lovely young couple's return of their time in Hawaii or scuba-ing or is that a verb? Uh, where they're going in the ocean and they had their ring and then they come out and they don't have their ring anymore. Some of you are nodding. Apparently you had that insurance policy uh, in place. But it's a very incidental thing, isn't it? I mean, both the sailor who drifts unaware of the change of course or the person whose ring slips off of their finger unawares, that's the kind of danger that we're facing. A steady... Uh, imperceptible kind of movement that slowly takes us away from where we ought to be. And as he enlarges this exhortation to pay more careful attention, he's reminding them that the message that the former saints received, those recipients of the earlier revelation of God, For since the message, verse 2, declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just or appropriate retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The analogy is one of lesser to greater, that angels were merely instruments in Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 in the book of Acts. Uh, We're reminded of angels' roles as mediators of God's revelation in the Old Testament. That message, the message about God's character, His nature, Moses' gospel message came uh, by way of of angelic attendance. It came, you think of of Exodus uh, 32, you think of Numbers 15, of Leviticus 10, of instances of the people's transgression and disobedience against God's revelation. I mean, that revelation was real. It It was powerful. It was from God Himself. 
You think of Moses as the one who received that message and how it marked his face. The glowing glory of God as he went off of that mountain and the people so aware of the power and presence of God that they wouldn't even touch the mountain that God revealed himself on. Yet time, not much time would pass at all before they'd fallen into transgression and disobedience and forsaken God's law. He's reminding us that that message was a reliable one. You see, our drifting is never a fault of the message. The message is good. The message is secure. The revelation isn't lacking. It's something in our own hearts, and it has everything to do with transgression, a word that means to break, and disobedience, a word that means to violate When we go against God's revelation, when we go our own way for our lives, we have before us the entire Old Testament as examples and reminders of what happens when we disobey God's clear command. The people experienced catastrophe in the wilderness. And we're all aware of that, but do you remember? I mean, this is your own spiritual heritage. Sometimes we think the Old Testament's you know, boring and, and odd and, and scary and we avoid it, but it really does contain the lessons of our spiritual heritage. Do you, do you remember that night? That night of the most tremendous deliverance God's people had ever known. It was a night like no other night because they had received revelation from God through Moses. Moses, that very unique person who had received from God a direct revelation as he fled from Pharaoh's palace, his life miraculously preserved as a baby and, and raised right in the enemy's camp. But alongside of his Hebrew mother, he goes out to the wilderness and receives revelation from God and comes back and demands of Pharaoh, let my people go. And finally, after nine plagues, Nothing has changed except the increasing hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so Moses hears from God that he is to call all the heads of the tribes. And they are to call all the heads of the households. And everyone is to take a lamb. A male lamb without spot. One year old. Into their home. And at the same time, at sunset... On the appointed day, there the family gather around and lay their hands on that lamb and cut its throat. To catch its blood and then to take a hyssop branch, every single family in Israel, in this land of Goshen, surrounded by Egyptians, experiencing all these plagues and still not being granted their freedom, is to take this blood and put it on the doorpost of their house. And they go to bed that night having roasted that lamb and that smell lingering in the air of delicious roasted lamb. But the strange ritual of putting that blood in the house. They remember when blood ran in their houses. When Pharaoh himself sent his soldiers to destroy their firstborns. That's when Moses had escaped in the first place, wasn't it? But this night would be different. Because God would send a punishing angel, the angel of the Lord, to go through the land. And if a house didn't have blood on the door on the doorstop, if a house didn't have a marking of a sacrifice, then an angel would enter that house and would require the life of the firstborn child. Exodus twelve says it wasn't just the poor but it was the very palace itself. There was no exceptions except those houses marked by blood sacrifice. That was the turning point and the beginning of the Exodus. 600,000 men in Israel at this point. Could have been as many 2 million Israelites, men, women, and children, that would leave the next morning insistent of Pharaoh that they leave his land. 
They were able to take with them the plunders of Egypt, the text tells us. And they went out with great celebration, their lives preserved. And God Himself led them by pillar of cloud in the day and pillar of fire at night. His presence with them, before them. His provision there with manna and quail. His spokesman, this man Moses who shepherded the people and led them and preached to them and taught them the Word of God, yet they still drifted. It wouldn't be long just right after the close of the song of Miriam celebrating that the horse and rider had been thrown into the sea, Pharaoh's armies destroyed, that the the idolatry that plagued them back in Egypt would come back to them. Why was that? Well, do you realize that as they left Egypt and plundered the Egyptians, with them they took the Egyptians' household gods. Some gods they formed in the wilderness from memory, but some gods were left over from their time in Egypt. To experience the greatest deliverance that God had ever demonstrated in the history of redemption. To be led out of Egypt victoriously and to be promised entrance into a perfect land was an amazing revelation, an amazing salvation from God. Yet they drifted, they drifted, they drifted over and over to the man except for a few. They would all die in the wilderness, a complete an utter catastrophe. He's reminding them of this because our experience is is likewise. They had a message declared by angels. We have a message delivered by the Son of God Himself. Their message proved to be reliable, trustworthy, And the example is given to all of us that every transgression or disobedience received an appropriate retribution from God Himself. How much more is our revelation going to be attended by the judgment of God if we transgress and disobey, if we drift away, if we fail to pay closer attention to what you say? And the answer is to a person. It's to the Great One the full revelation of God, the Son Himself, the heir of all things, the One who created the world and the One who gave His life to die in our place. We must pay close attention to Him and never drift from Him. It is the simplicity of knowing Christ. That's the danger they faced. And now we're looking at the warning He gave in verses 2-4. through It's a warning whose exhortation is is enlarged by the experience of the Old Testament saints. And it's a reminder that we must be aware of our tendency to drift. Of an anchor broken loose from the ocean floor, or a mooring slipped from a ship that's drifted from dock and harbor into open sea. It's rarely by purposeful abandonment. It's even more rarely from a well-reasoned argument from an atheist that someone abandons their faith. But instead it comes through the vehicles of inattention and carelessness that cause us to drift further and further away. R. Kent Hughes says it this way, that church's experience 2,000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as the metaphor suggests, it is not so much intentional as from unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to quietly drift away. There is no friction, no dramatic sense of departure. But when the winds of trouble come, The things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. The writer of Revelation uses different language, but refers to the same thing when he quotes Jesus as saying to the ostensibly healthy Ephesian church, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Do you agree with 
Pastor Hughes, that the besetting sin of our day is drifting? Are you mindful of your own place? Your proximity to Christ? Are you aware of a love that's grown cold in your heart for your Savior? Are you conscious of the distance that's gone between your times of prayer and communion with Christ? An awareness of this is key if we are going to fight this tendency to drift. Look, it's true. No authentic Christian can sin himself into eternal lostness. It's not possible. No authentic Christian would ever. Because he who continues to the end will be saved. God will keep His people and persevere. But that doesn't counteract the necessity of your individual attention and perseverance. If drifting is the besetting sin of our day, if we are, have a tendency in ourselves to wander, to neglect our anchor, to forsake our first love, we must be aware if this is taking place in our lives. Can I ask you a series of questions? Has your grip on Christ slackened? Do you have an apathy towards the Bible that didn't used to be there? Does preaching bore you when it used to feed your soul? Does the slightest excuse pull you away from fellowship, from the gathering of the church? Does leisure have an increased place in your life? Has speaking to your Savior ceased to be your delight? Has your quest to be like Christ diminished? Do spiritual conversations cause you embarrassment? Have you lost the freedom that you once had as a bold evangelist when you first came to know the Gospel? Have you noticed moral degradation in your life and practice? Are you compromising at work? Are you cheating on a test? Are you flirting with dangerous sin? The consequence of ignoring the gospel of Jesus Christ is severe but sure. And that apathy that can grow in our hearts is a reminder that we must never neglect Christ. Never become dissatisfied with what we have in Jesus This passage closes by trying to urge upon us even greater to urge on us why this salvation should not be neglected. The answer of verse 3 is obviously a negative. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The way you preach that is not three ways to neglect such a great salvation. Instead, the answer is you shouldn't. You shouldn't neglect it and you will not escape the judgment if you do neglect it. And so how does he close this little paragraph? Well, he closes it by giving us lines of evidence, increasing in their uh, obviousness, trying to press upon us the significance of this message of the coming of Christ, trying to remind you of how and when you received your salvation and what kind of a salvation it was. So as we look at verse 3 and 4, remember when you first came to Christ, And how compelling He was to you. His three lines of evidence are this. It was declared at first by the Lord. It was declared at first by the Lord. How did you come to Christ? Maybe it was a faithful evangelist. Maybe it was your mother's prayers. Maybe it was a friend who confronted you about your sinful lifestyle. Maybe it was the expose of your hypocrisy. But ultimately, the way you came to Jesus was by Jesus. No one comes to the Father unless the Son draws Him. You do not know God unless you know Jesus. This is a reminder that this message was declared first by the Lord Himself. 
How do you know that salvation is, is true? How do you know that Jesus is the ultimate one? It's because He Himself declared it. He is the vehicle of God's revelation. He is God of very God. Second line of reasoning, it was attested to us by those who heard. Attested to us by those who heard, this is the eyewitness accounts that our Bibles are filled with of those who saw the resurrected Lord, of uh, fishermen, kind of pokey, dopey, foot-in-the-mouth fishermen who were transformed into bold apostolic witnesses and preachers because of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. These are the eyewitness testimonies that authenticate all that Jesus said about Himself. All that He declared to be true. How should you know that you should hold tightly to your salvation? How should you know that you should pay much closer attention to the message that you've heard? How should you guard against drifting? Well, Jesus Himself attested to the truthfulness, to the veracity, to the reality of knowing Him and God confirmed it by those who heard. And then a third witness is the Father Himself. It says, well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Do you understand how radical this is? On Super Bowl Sunday, I mean, you should be melting cheese right now. But you're gathered here because you love one another. That was distracting, wasn't it? And because you care for each other and because you want to exalt Christ. God's witness of the greatness of Christ and the Gospel was by signs and wonders and various miracles. God interrupted human history to demonstrate the divinity of Christ as He healed masses of people, as the apostles accomplished the miraculous, authenticating their uh, divine message. And then they wrote this remarkable book that we have seen its supernatural power in transforming our lives over and over again through the waters of baptism and testimonies that we hear of God changing people from the inside out and then equipping them with gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What's this about? Well, I don't think it's about modern day phony miracles showing up. Instead, I think this is about the building of the church that God promised that He would do through Christ that the gates of hell would never prevail against. That's why it ends with gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The encouragement that you find from one another at church is evidence of the greatness of Jesus. The service that you render on behalf of one another in caring for kids in Sunday school is evidence of the greatness of the resurrected one. The gifts of the Holy Spirit from teaching to uh, encouragement to helping to administration whether they're the gifts that are showy or the gifts that are seemingly less all of them are evidence that you find in one another in this church of how radical this place is a radical love for one another a bold commitment to the gospel and to each other that reminds us that the message is true, it's powerful, it's life-changing, and you see it every Sunday morning in your church. There's a danger in neglecting salvation. You know that familiar line from that hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. It's the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written by a man named Robert Robinson. And he had a profligate life. Was part of a gang of rough kids. His father died when he was very young and he had no one to guide him, and he fell in with this, this bad group. And there's a lot of stories told about his life. It's hard to tell which ones are accurate or not. But there's a story that goes from his teenage years that he was with this group of 
of guys and they were drunk and wandering the streets. And they ran into an old gypsy woman, a beggar on the, on the streets. And Robert Robinson and his friends poured alcohol on her, just disrespecting her. And she raised her finger at Robert and said, you will live to see your grandchildren. Most of the guys laughed it off, but not him. He had heard the gospel before and and he thought to himself, if I am going to live that long, I want to be aware of what my grandchildren will think of me. And that sent him searching. And when he was still a young man, about 20 years old, he went into a meeting, a Methodist meeting where the preacher George Whitfield was there. And he preached on the text from Matthew 3.7, O generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And it was that text that brought Robert to his knees. And he became a preacher himself. Just over two years after his conversion, he'd write that hymn that's still sung today. But the story goes that that line prone to Wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That Robert Robinson, later in his life, fell into a group of Unitarians. People who denied the gospel. He associated with them. and The rumors swirled about what his commitment really was. We don't know exactly where his heart was. But a story is commonly told that he was riding in a carriage and the woman across from him in the carriage was humming the words to his song that he'd written all those decades before. And tears started to flow down his face and she asked him, do you know that song? And reportedly he said this, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I could, to enjoy the feelings I had then. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what the veracity of that story is. But I know the words of that hymn are true for me and true for you. Prone to wander Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's a reference to the Spirit's work in persevering us to the end. How is it done on a human level? We've heard it today. Pay closer attention to Christ and be mindful of the danger of drifting from Him because He is the unique Son of God. And He is better than anything this world could ever offer. And He's better than your former manner of life. Press on towards Christ to know Him and make Him known.